Our text for today's sermon is from the Gospel of John, the seventh chapter, verses 37, 38, and 39. I'll remind you of that in just a minute. You can just listen if you want to, and then we'll pray. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You guys... Dan was talking about peace, and I just want you to know, I too am overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed and just choked up as we meet to gather today. Um, I'm overwhelmed on a regular basis at home, and I am reminded over and over of that verse that Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians, don't be anxious about anything. But in all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of Jesus Christ will guard your hearts and your mind. The peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These verses that you have heard so many times um, have new weight in this season. But I want to assure you that though they have new weight to you, they have always carried that weight of God's faithfulness. And even when we struggle how to pray, we're reminded in Romans 8 that though we don't know how to pray or what we ought to pray for, that the Holy Spirit himself teaches us how to pray and intercedes for us. And that's great hope. So I want to invite you to come. Pray with me before we look at this passage. Let's bow our heads. Father, I praise you that you hear your people when they pray to you. Father, you have said that the prayers of your people rise before you like sweet incense. You have said that when your people cry out to you, you hear them and you know. You identify with us. Father, even as Dan was praying earlier this afternoon, we are overwhelmed in these days with our sense of vulnerability. Father, in some senses, the the mystery, the, um, the illusion that we are anything but vulnerable all the time has been ripped away. Father, both with regard to our health and our financial well-being, we are overwhelmed with our sense of vulnerability. And Father, we're not ignorant. We know that there are women and men around the world who are magnitudes of order, more vulnerable, Father, we think of the countries through which 
COVID-19 has already swept through. And we lift up the women and the men of Italy who have experienced hundreds of deaths every day. We lift up your church in China, your people. And we cry out to you, Father, have mercy. Father, when we cry to you, we know that you hear us. And we praise you for that. We praise you that you hear us when we cry out in our fear of sickness, in our fear of job loss, in our fear of death. Father, you know us. You hear us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of your people today that you intercede for us with groans that are too deep for words. And Father, that's what we need today. We need that knowledge that goes beyond understanding of the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ. We need you, Father, to comfort our hearts, our souls. Father, we ask that as we turn to your word, you would do what you have always promised to do, which is to take it and plant it deep into our hearts. That you would give us courage to listen to you. That you would give us eyes to see the magnitude of who Jesus is and seeing him that we, women and men, created in your image, would be changed. We would be different. Father, I ask you, would you do something in this service that none of us have planned? Would you work for your glory and for our good? Father, we pray especially for the women and the men who are in harm's way as medical professionals, as lab directors and technicians around the world who are racing to find relief. And Father, we ask that you would hear the cries of your people and for your glory and for our good that you would bring relief. And Father, we pray for those who are overwhelmed with anxiety. Aware of our vulnerability. Maybe like we've never been aware of it in our lives. Would you give the peace that passes understanding? And would it guard our hearts? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, we're going to do one more sermon out of, outside of Acts. Uh, these are two topical sermons. Those of you who are members and attenders of Christ the King Church Newton know that that's not our normal pattern. We typically uh, go through a book of the Bible. Um, but we have deviated from that norm on purpose um, as we consider what these last two weeks have done in our lives and how we look forward. And as we transition to what may be a new normal, 
which is us meeting like this. Uh, children at home, those of you who are the youngest, I want you to go get pencils for the rest of your family, and I want you to bring them back to your family uh, so that they can scratch down notes. Because when we look at what the Scripture teaches us, I want us to remember that what we aren't doing is looking for something to make us feel better. We are looking for reality. Because Scripture promises nothing short of that. As we talked about these first two weeks, what we asked were the questions, what does the Bible teach us to believe, particularly in the midst of chaos? And that's why we looked at Psalm 46. And if you remember there last week, we saw that Psalm 46 teaches us that God is our refuge and our strength, a fortress. A fortress is a high tower from which there is safety, but also sight. Also the ability to define reality, right? And because of that, because God is our fortress, we won't be afraid. And there were two reasons, because God is with us and he is at work. That's what the scriptures teach us to believe, especially in times of chaos. Go back and read Psalm 46 again. But the second question that I want us to ask ourselves is how does the Christian live in light of that reality? What do Christians do? And that's why we've turned to our text today in John chapter 7. And I want to tell you three things that Christians do. Christians derive life from Jesus. The second thing is that Christians ask for more life. And the third thing is that Christians expect to give that life away. I was talking to one of you this week. And you said that as you were contemplating our present reality, your mind was whisked back to high school. And I'm not going to give you away, but I know that your high school was decades ago. And even decades old memories were brought back. And you recalled how you read Albert Camus' The Plague. You reminded me of this novel written about a seaside town in Algeria, North Africa. And your memory was the memory of the priest's sermon. I went back and read that priest's sermon this week, and there's a lot of it that I can't get on board with. But he said one thing, and this is what you particularly remembered, that makes us aware of the magnitude of God's word today. That priest in Camus' novel, The, the Plague, said that during times of the plague, that half-hearted beliefs fall away. What you really believe becomes crystallized, clarified, and brought into focus. And as we together wait our faith, as we step out on it and find that it holds, we're reminded that God is, what he says in Psalm 46, a well-proven help in times of trouble. And I want to encourage you, for these next few minutes, let's step out on his word and let's do it together. I've told you that during this time, the question is, what do we as Christians do? How do we behave? 
And the three things that I told you we were going to talk about is how Christians derive their life from Jesus. They ask for more life and they expect to give it away. But before we answer those, I want to take you, and this will just be four or five minutes, I promise, on an excursus of answering the question, how do you connect Psalm 46 to John 7? What's the connection? It seems completely odd. I remember as a child when my clothing would tear and there would be a thread and I would begin to pull the thread and the clothes would gather together because the thread was woven throughout all the, the fabric. And my mother would holler at me and say, don't pull the thread, stop pulling the thread. Well, I want you to ignore your mother for a minute, not, not in any way that's going to cause havoc in your house, but I want you to ignore your mother for a minute and pull this thread of the connection with me. I had a friend who responded last week to the sermon. Uh, they were encouraged, but they said, you know, we looked back and tried to explain it to our children. And this idea of the river in verse 4 of Psalm 46, what is it? Uh, is it God? Does it emanate from God? And I want you to pull that thread for just a minute because that's the connection between Psalm 46 and John 7. In the Bible, this idea of the river is a metaphor for the source of life. Now I want you to pay attention to see where it comes from, okay? First time we see this river is in Genesis 2, verse 10. It's a river that flows from the Garden of Eden, that place where God dwelt with human beings, Adam and Eve, and it flowed and watered the garden and it flowed out of the garden. We don't see this flowing water much more in Scripture until we see the Israelites who, whom God has taken out of Egypt and he's brought into the desert. And when they need water, this metaphor for the source of life, literally when they need water in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, this flowing water, this life source comes forth from the rock that God makes his presence known. He settles on a rock and then water pours forth from that rock. Again, identifying God's presence and his provision. That is memorialized in the life of the Israelites through this thing called the Feast of the Tabernacles where they celebrated life in the desert. And part of that feast is that they actually took water as it flowed through the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem out of what happened to be a spring that was always flowing in Jerusalem. They drew water out of it and the water right during this festival was to take it and pour it out on the altar so that the water went down the altar and began to trickle out of the temple. It's this image that the writers of Psalm 46, the sons of Korah, take when they write and they say that there is a river, the streams of which make glad the city of God because God is present with her. This flowing river is the identity of what emanates from the presence of God, God's presence. The prophet Ezekiel, before the Israelites get sent into the Babylonian captivity in chapter 47, are given a, he's given a vision of a new temple. And guess what is trickling out of this temple? That's right. A small trickle of water out of the south gate, the very gate where the festival of tabernacles or as booths where the water was taken into the temple. Out of that gate 
The water flowed. It was a trickle. But the further you got away from the temple, the deeper and deeper the water began. And it's this picture of this river that Jesus is talking about in this passage. It says in our passage that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. This was the feast of tabernacles. It was the feast of booths. It was the feast when that water rite would have taken place for every day, seven times already that week, water would have been taken from this, this, this stream, this, this, this spring of Gashan, and it would have been poured out over the altar, and it would have streamed out of the temple. And in that reality, Jesus stands up on the last day, after it had already happened for the last time, and he stands up, and he says what our passage says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is an amazing proclamation of Christ. In this proclamation, he is proclaiming his own divinity. And he is saying, I am the source of life. I am the source of life. It is me. And finally, you want to know what the last image of the Bible is in Revelation 22? The last image in the Bible is the image of the river of the water of life that is crystal clear. And guess where it comes from? It comes from the throne of God and from the Lamb is what we read in Revelation 22. This is the image of the river. This is what connects Psalm 46 and John 7. In the 17th verse of that 22nd chapter, the scripture actually says that both the spirit and the church, the bride of Christ, say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and take the water of life without price. The river emanates from God. It's the source of life and of salvation. The Holy Spirit, the source of life, the guarantee of eternal life from the beginning of Scripture all the way to its end. That's what connects these. So how do we as Christians live? The very first thing that we learn in this passage is that Christians derive life from Jesus. Maybe you're hearing this like you've never heard it before. And I'm asking you, where are you looking for life in the last week? Are you deriving it from Christ? Because in verse 37, he says, come to me and drink. There is one source for life, and it's Jesus he says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. I was thinking about it this week and the phrase that jumped into my head was, eternal life is not franchised. <laughs> you don't buy eternal life and open up your own store and offer eternal life. Eternal life only comes from Jesus. This strikes us individually. Some of you might recall this that in John 4, Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. And this is what he said. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, would you give me a drink? You would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. You remember the woman at the well, Jesus meets her and he's thirsty and he asks her for water. And, and she is shocked that he asks her. And in that interaction, he entices her thirst. And he says, I am the one who can quench your thirst. Jesus says, come to me and ask for living water and I will give it to you. Look, this is better than Amazon Prime. It's better than Amazon delivered in two hours. When you ask for life from Christ, it is instant. Because he is the one who in his own death defeated death and has the right to give life, to give the Holy Spirit to you when you ask for it. He made this known to the woman at the well. But the invitation is for anyone who is thirsty. Will you come to him? Will you get your life from Jesus? Will you pray, Jesus, would you give me life? But there is a corporate reality to the life that Jesus gives as well. Jesus is called the cornerstone. He's called the rock. And actually, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Jesus is the rock that followed the Israelites in the desert, as it were, from Exodus 17 all the way to Numbers 20, the rock that poured forth water. And he said Christ was actually that rock. And he says that we as his people are living stones built together with Christ as our foundation and our cornerstone from whom the life, the living water emanates from him to us. Listen, you guys, we're living stones. The Holy Spirit dwells among us. This source of life that wells up in us unto salvation. And the way we access that corporately is by the ordinary means of grace. It's by us gathering together as a church, even when it's virtual. This is why this is so important. Listen, I know that it's difficult to get to church. But for those of you who may have had church as something you did in the past, the reason that you are thirsty is because you have gone to places other than the source of Jesus to receive life. Life is to be found where he says to find it. And he says it is found at the church where the preaching of his word the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper is his sacraments and the prayers of God's people are what feed us. I wish you could see the sanctuary right now. It's empty except for one, two, three, four rows. There's only individuals in each row except for Mita and Louisa because they've already co-contaminated each other. And, and everyone is sitting so far apart and in this concept of self-isolation, look, we have to do this. This is, a, this is reasonable. But I want you to know that life is found corporately as we celebrate the preaching of God's word, the sacraments of the church, the prayers of his people. I'm reminded of this idea that John Owen gave that when he says that 
if the entire world would drink from one of the promises of God, the entire world were to go to this promise as if it were a well. And in fact, he, he makes the picture so, so stark. He says, and an angel were sitting there telling you, drink, drink, yes, drink all that you can. He says in that context, if the entire world were to go and drink from one of the promises of God, they should not be able to sink the grace of the promise one hair's breadth. The grace of that promise, that there is enough for millions of worlds if they were, because the promises of God and of his grace flow into it from an infinite, bottomless fountain. The first thing that Christians do is derive their life from Jesus. Are you doing that? individually and corporately. The second thing is to ask for more life, right? Verse 38 says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Listen, the promises of God become the grounds for our asking. Remember, Jesus told the woman at the well, if you knew who it was who was asking you for water, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The promises of God are the grounds for our asking. Glenn Hoberg, who is a pastor in Washington, D.C. now, was one of the pastors that taught me how to pray. And he taught me and said, always pray with the scriptures open. Pray with God's promises. Say to God, God, you said that you would give me eternal life. You said that you would give me your spirit. Pray God's words back to him. Be assured that he will fulfill his promises. He has said, even as Dan pointed us to Lamentations, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Do you believe this? Jesus said in Luke 11, after he taught the people to pray, and after he told the parable about the man who went to get bread, he said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the spirit when you ask for it? This is the promise. And look, are you struggling to pray, to ask for more? It's the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 that teaches us how to pray. It's the Holy Spirit that prays for us with groans and utterances too deep for words. You see, sometimes we think of our lives as Christians as if we're water balloons that just need to be filled up and, 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 and we're leaking. And the picture is of this ever-increasing water balloon and you're just waiting for it to burst. But I want you to see that that's not the picture that Jesus gives throughout all of Scripture. But rather, the better way to look at it is that we as Christians are like conduits. We are like conduits of the Holy Spirit's work into the world and the places where he has sent us. And that's the last thing. If the first thing that I've asked you to do and have said that we as Christians ought to do is to derive our life from Jesus... The second thing that we as Christians ought to be asking for is, Jesus, give us more life. Give us more of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the third thing that I want you to see is to expect to give that life away. 
Verses 38 and 39 say this. Out of his heart, the one who prays and, and, and the one who comes to Jesus and, and drinks, Jesus says that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And verse 39 says, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were about to receive. What do we do as Christians? We expect to give life away. I want to challenge you with something. I want you to resist hoarding. All right, I want you to resist hoarding. It's way too easy to give the example that we're all thinking about, that we all read about in the newspaper. But I want you to think about your own heart and our tendency to hoard life, to not give it away because maybe I won't get it back. We do what we do today because we are not promised tomorrow. No, I want you to consider that the scriptures encourage us to resist hoarding. The promise that Jesus gives is the promise that these rivers of living water will flow out of us. You see, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of eternal life and you can resist hoarding. I'm going to say it even further. You can stop fearing death. Because you believe that the Holy Spirit has been given to any who have put their faith and trust in Christ as the one who paid the price for their death, never to see death again. Expect to give our lives away means we resist hoarding. It also means that we seek opportunities to give. If Jesus is talking about the Spirit who was going to be given to the believers we all have heard of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, you can go look them up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We were at our house this week reading devotions. And you guys know that I love Jack Miller. Uh, my kids love Jack Miller because the devotions are really short. Um, and in one of his devotions this week, he actually said that the fruit of the Spirit doesn't mean anything to you if you have no sense of the direction. The fruit of the Spirit is not for yourself. It is for export. It is to be given away. I remember taking Mita to the family farm where I grew up. Or excuse me, not where I grew up, where my, where my family grew up, where my grandfather grew up and, and the family farm that my father would go back and visit. And when I went there, my great uncle, the first thing that he did is he said, I got to take you to the spring and you got to drink from the spring. You have to. And Mita was like, all right. So she went and she drank from the spring. Are we seeking opportunities to give that living water? When you go back and you look at the river in Revelation 22, there are trees that are growing beside the river. And do you know what it says about the leaves of those trees? That they are meant for the healing of the nations. You guys, because the Spirit has been given to us, the kingdom of God has broken into our present reality. It is the alreadiness of our faith. And the gifts of that Spirit, the fruit of that Spirit are intended for us to give away. We prayed this week in prayer on Wednesday through Romans 12, 12. It says this, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. 
contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. What do Christians do in these times? We derive our life from Jesus. We go back to him and regularly ask for more life. And we expect to give that life away. Granted, social isolation, it's really hard to know how to do that. We've got to pray and ask for wisdom, but that's what we do. Some of you might say, that that seems very ordinary. Well, in closing, Mita sent a email to me this week. I know we've been socially isolated in our own house, but I still get emails from my wife. It's unbelievable. And it was from C.S. Lewis. Not from him, but it was about him. He had written a piece in a public journal about what happened when the atomic bomb was created and the anxiety that existed in people's lives at that time. And the question that was asked of him is, how are we to live in an atomic age? And this is how Lewis responds. He said, I'm tempted to reply, why you would have lived in the 16th, why just as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders might land and cut your throat at any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, in an age of syphilis, in an age of paralysis, and in an age of air raids, and in an age of railway accidents, and an age of motorcycle accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation, he says. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all who you love are already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. He is not minimizing the reality of something so scary. He's just saying, think about this in perspective. And finally, he says this. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to is the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, he says, let the bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying and working and teaching and reading and listening to music and bathing children and playing tennis and chattering to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. The idea is this. Lewis is saying, in the face of death, we live as human beings. And I want to say to Christians, in the face of the chaos, how do we live? We continue to derive our life from Jesus, to ask him for more and more of his spirit, and to expect that that spirit flow through us into the life where he has called us for God's glory and for the good of the communities where we live. This is his word. Let's pray.